Good evening. It's this morning. It's and yet you are here this evening. We are so thankful that you are here with us. I'd invite you to take your Old Testaments out and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 14. Deuteronomy chapter 14. And tonight, going to be talking about tithing. Are Christians commanded in this day and age to tithe? There are many different denominational groups that practice tithing. In fact, I can recall, it wasn't too terribly long ago, we had some visitors and one of them had came up and she said, uh, where do I place my tithe? I said, <laughs> I said, well, we don't tithe here. I said, we give as we prosper in our heart and, you know, as we give of our means. And, and some of those things, that, that's what we're going to talk about this evening. And so that's uh, that interaction that I had with our visitor. I said, you know, it's something that we all need to be reminded of. We need to talk about it, need to discuss it and go over it and Find out exactly what is it that God wants. Now, the first time a tithe is mentioned is back in Genesis, and I believe it's in Genesis oh, chapter 14, where Abraham offers a, a tithe, a tenth. But it wasn't commanded. He did so out of his own heart. He did it, well, if it was commanded, we weren't told about it. Let me uh, verify that. Uh, we're not specified. But we see here in Deuteronomy chapter 14, oh, and drop down to verse 22, here we see the command of tithe, and it, and it somewhat tells us the purpose of the tithe. So Deuteronomy chapter 14, starting at verse 22. You shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow, which comes out of the field every year. Now already notice, this isn't talking about a checkbook, not talking about a wallet, not talking about just financial means. You know, nowadays when people talk about tithe, they're talking about 10% of just a portion of your life. So of your financial means, whatever you make, 10%, boom, that's what you are to give. Yet, do we see that or find that in the New Testament? What we see and find here is that it's beyond just one thing. It was 10% of what they had. So I just wanted to make that abundantly clear. You shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the, at the place where he chooses to establish his name, the tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock, so that they may learn to fear the Lord your God always. If the distance is so great for you that you are not able to bring the tithe, since the place where the Lord your God chooses to set his name is too far away from you, when the Lord your God blesses you, then you shall exchange it for money, and bind the money in your hand, and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses." 
You may spend the money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink or whatever your heart desires. And there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord and your God and rejoice you and your household. Also, you shall not neglect the Levite who is in your town, for he has no portion or inheritance among you. And so now we're really seeing the background, the backdrop of the story. Why? What is the purpose? Because the tribe of Levi, they didn't have anything. They weren't given an inheritance. And so a lot of this is going to be utilized to support them. At the end of every third year, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in that year and shall deposit it in your town. The Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you, and the alien, the orphan and the widow who are in your town, shall come and eat and be satisfied in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. So we see the command to tithe here, but do we see the command to tithe in the New Testament? And so, you know, I don't want to portray this idea that there's a New Testament God versus Old Testament God. No, we're still serving under the same God. But he obviously has a different standard, and that's what we see in the New Testament. And to me, if, I, if, if you will, if you just go along with me for just a moment, I believe the standard is higher in the New Testament than it was under the old law. And so uh, one context I want to turn to is 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. The new covenant, the new covenant, excuse me, under Christ, we don't see the command to tithe. But I do believe that there's a higher standard of authority under uh, this covenant, under Christ, than under the first covenant. And so we see here in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1 and 2, now concerning the collection for the saints. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. And so obviously the context continues on, but I I want to just stop here and just go over a few things with you this evening. Now concerning the collection for, we're giving a purpose. We're told why this collection is taking place. What's the purpose? It is for the saints. That is its only purpose. For the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. I have been in conversation with folks who, for, for one, they don't understand Bible authority. They believe that the only thing that we can utilize is command and example, that there's no such thing as anything as reference to necessary inference or unavoidable conclusions, conclusions that you would draw from the text. And, you know, obviously my retort to that is, is, well, if that's the case, then why do we believe the Bible? Your name is not in the Bible. It's not. 
There is nothing in this book that specifies that it is written for Lee Elkins, that it's written for any one of you. How should we know that to follow it if it's not implied? Obviously, parts of communication, uh, in order to communicate with one another, inference is a huge part of our conversation and communication. And so what we see here is, is that there was a gathering of the saints. Some people say, well, there's no gathering there. And this is in all to argue against the five acts of worship. That we partake of the Lord's Supper, that we give, take a collection, that we sing, that we pray, that we preach and study the Word of God. They say that there's no gathering. Well, I see a gathering, the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, or the churches in Galatia, were those not gatherings? Furthermore, he says, on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections or no gatherings be made when I come. Every week, the brethren in the first century, I mean, they met daily. There's no denying that. There's no doubt about that. But there is no denying the reality that upon the first day of every week, which I know... I don't believe the King James renders it that way. Uh, the New American Standard Translators tends to believe that's why they put on the first day of every week the disciples gathered together. And when they did, there was a purpose behind the gathering. They did so, they would gather together and they would give. Why? So that there be no collections when I come. Because when Paul was going to come there, what was he going to do? He was going to come there. He would end up preaching to them. He would teach them. He would admonish them. He would encourage them. He would build them up. And then he has to continue on his work and on his way. And all along the way, there's going to be needy saints. So what is he going to do? He's going to take whatever they have collected up and he's going to take it with him to go take it to the saints. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for, for me to go also, they will go with me. But, it, but I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. So we see... There's a purpose. You go over to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. And what do we see here in Acts 20 and verse 7? On the first day of the week. Again, nobody's denying the reality that the brethren there met daily. But what we're seeing here is that there's something special about this there's something that must be implied why is the first day of the week specified in first corinthians 16 why is the first day of the week specified here clearly there's an implication here there's something that we're supposed to draw conclusions to understand that there was something that they were gathering together to accomplish a task and what was this task on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread. 
that phrase, you, whether you want to call it a, an idiom or, or a figurative language, is an expression that's describing when they gather together to partake of the Lord's Supper. Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. There was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep, and as Paul was kept talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and picked up dead. That's why we don't have anybody up there, because if, if someone was up there and I was preaching until midnight, someone would fall down and go to sleep and probably drop dead. But Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. When he had gone back up, had broken bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak, and then left. And they took the boy alive and were greatly comforted. Why was this specific day, the first day of the week, specified if there was no rhyme or no reason, if there was no meaning behind why they were meeting, and yet you've got people out there who say, oh, well, we can partake of the Lord's Supper on a Thursday. There's, it's, we, can, we can just take it whenever we want. Prove it. I can show you and I can prove that that's why they met. I can show you and I can prove what they did also while they met was taking a collection for the saints. And so, because this is a lesson about tithing and taking a collection, let's get back to that thought. I want us to go over to 2 Corinthians. Turn to 2 Corinthians. In chapter 9. Let's talk about the why, the how, how we are to give, and why I believe that this is a higher standard of giving than just a tenth. We look here at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, oh, and drop down to verse 5. We'll start at verse 5. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead of you to arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Now this I say, he who, sp who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. For each must do just as he's purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. So this premise, here we see that we are to give generously 
in all circumstances. We should be joyful with the, with the idea and the fact that we have the means to be able to help those who are in need, and especially our own brethren. And so the reason for this is, is twofold. For one, those who sow sparingly reaps sparingly. Secondly, God loves a cheerful giver. And there's no doubt, it's nice to be on the receiving end of things. But I'm sure most of you have experienced being on both sides. You've experienced, some of you have probably experienced of having your hand out and needing something and someone coming and helping fulfill that need without asking, maybe without even knowing. And then on the flip side, you find yourself on the other side of the equation. Being able to give just for the sake of giving. Seeing a young family who might be struggling. And you just randomly, whether it's reach in your pockets or in your pantries or whatever it is. And you help them. Because you can do it. Because it's not a problem. What does that feel like? Especially knowing that God loves that giver who does it cheerfully, who doesn't do it grumbling and mumbling. You know, oh, I don't know. I, I guess I'll help you out this time. You know, you, you really got to learn to stand on your two feet, buddy. But while some of that might be true, if that's how we're giving, all of the time. Is that the kind of giving that God wants from us? So this is some things that I think we need to think about in our giving. The principle that Jesus has laid out for us in the new covenant is, is that we are to be cheerful givers. That servants of God, we need to be giving from what we have in this life and in, in giving of our first fruits, just as even in tithing, that's what they were supposed to give of the first fruit. But this is the greater command than tithing because, for one, we are under a better covenant. Go with me to, oh, Hebrews chapter 10. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, look at what the Hebrew writer says. He says, Then he said, Behold, I, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Whatever we give of ourselves and of our things, of our means, of our money, whatever it is, Christ gave more. And that can be a bitter pill to swallow at times. If, if, our, if our heart is not right with God, if our minds aren't in sync with the, with the principles of Christianity, that is a very big, bitter pill to swallow. 
Because some, sometimes we feel like we're the milk cows. There's no doubt that that happens. Sometimes you will be taken advantage of. You can't control that. Well, what you can control is your heart. You can control your mindset. You can control your attitude, your overall disposition of life. God loves a cheerful giver. And we live in a country that, yes, there's need... But our needs are cute. Cute compared to other areas of the world. And some of you were fortunate enough to be able to experience those other countries. And I'm thankful for your service. And I'm very, I'm extremely appreciative in other places. I love being able to send them some support to help them in those endeavors. Because that's just not for me. It's not that I'll never do it, but I'm comfortable here. I want to work here, evangelizing this area. I'll tell you, I'm a, I, I've said it here before, and I'm, I'm going to say it again. Sometimes I think we need to bring those evangelists from those third world countries and come here to evangelize, to really show us the work of the church. I'm not saying that we haven't figured it out and that we just screw up all the time. But sometimes getting that outside perspective can really open your eyes and and help you to see we've got it so much easier here in America. Our needs, yes, there are there's all there's homeless here. There are people who struggle, who live paycheck to paycheck. I understand that. But if you've got running water, you've got electricity, you have gas or however you heat your homes, heat up your water, you've got a running vehicle, you've got groceries in your pantry, you have something to give. Not only are we to give of our means, we need to give people the gospel. And that's why this is a higher standard of giving. It's more than just giving the tenth. Sometimes we might give a percentage. We might give 1% of our financial means. And that's okay. Because 1% for some people could be a whole lot of giving anyways. Because there are people who are richly blessed here in this country. But if you are giving people the gospel, you're giving them everything that pertains to life and godliness. Turn over with me to Matthew chapter 6. See, we need to see the bigger picture out of all of this. The bigger picture is is that not only do we give people and help take care of their physical needs, but ultimately we give them something that's going to take care of them spiritually that will bring about the additional help that might be necessary for their lives. You look here at uh, Matthew chapter 6. And you start at around verse 25. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So we're looking at the bigger picture here. Bills are going to come and go, but let me tell you something. Your eternity, once it's set, that's it. But those massive water bills out of Jacksonville, 
It'll get paid. And you'll carry on to the next month. But the bill that you'll receive during judgment, if it's not well done, good and faithful servant, there's no coming out of that. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are, the, are you not much worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble on its own. So must we tithe? No. Now, if you want to, if you want to personally for yourself create a, help set a standard and say, okay, 10%, by all means, I cannot preach it from the pulpit. Whatever you feel in your heart that bears and weighs on your conscience. If you say 10% is what you're going to give, then 10% is what you're going to give. If you feel that you're going to give 25%, then 25 is going to be, 25% is going to be what you give. Whatever the percentage is, that's up to you. But if you are not a cheerful giver, what is it that we know about God? He loves a cheerful giver. So if that is not you, we don't need to focus on the percentages. We need to focus on our heart. One more passage, and then the lesson will be yours. Go with me to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. Starting at verse 41. And he sat down the opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. Were they given more than 10%? I mean, how much were they given? I don't know. It just says large sums. A poor widow came and put two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the other contributors in the treasury. There's that big, hard, bitter pill for you this evening. For they all put in out of their surplus. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. And in that, 
She trusted God the rest of the way. I submit to you she was a cheerful giver. And I hope and pray that when we give, no matter how little, no matter how large, that when we give, that we trust in God. But that most of all, that what we share are things that pertains to life and godliness. That we share the good news. That we share our lives not only with one another, but even with those of the world. God loves a cheerful giver. But if the world doesn't know that we love them, they don't care how much we give. They don't care how often we come together to worship. They won't care that we partake of the Lord's Supper. They don't even care that you have the truth. So let's be cheerful with one another. Let's give God our everything. Not just 10%. The new covenant is a higher standard of measure. 10%, what is that? It's not going to get you to heaven. But what will is having your sins washed away. Remembered no more. Being made blameless, being made righteous, set apart, sanctified, justified. That's what we want for everybody. Everybody to be able to come into contact into the blood of Jesus Christ, to have their sins washed away, remembered no more, and to spend eternity with God. But maybe you've done that. We're about to sing the song, God is Calling the Prodigal. I mean, no point in beating around the bush. The majority of this group are people who have already obeyed the gospel. And we know the story about the prodigal son. How he basically went to his father and he said, in, in modern day terms, he said, look, you're as good as dead to me. Just give me what's mine and I'll go on my way. And he went and squandered it all away. He went out and lived in sin, unrighteousness, ungodliness, wickedness. And then he recognized that he had it far better under the care of his father. And so he went back. God's not calling just the unbeliever. He's calling for the prodigals to come back. He's calling for those who have stepped away from God for however long it's been, whether it's years or whether it's just been maybe just a few hours. If you have sin in your life, you need to take care of it because yesterday's gone. You've got today, but tomorrow does not exist. So this is your one and opportunity to make things right, to be reconciled back to God. If you're here tonight and you're subject to our public invitation, we ask that you please come forward as we prepare to stand and sing the invitation song.